Podcastle, episode 327, for September 3rd, 2014. The Telling, by Gregory Norman Bossert. Rated R contains some disturbing imagery, some of it sexual, as well as bees. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson. Do we have a treat for you this week? The winner of the 2013 World Fantasy Award for Short Fiction, Gregory Norman Bossert's The Telling. It was originally published back in issue 109 of Beneath Ceaseless Skies in November 2012, but this, my friend, is its very first audio adaptation. Greg told us The Telling was my first published fantasy story. Yeah, you heard that right. He won the World Fantasy Award on his first fantasy story. The story was inspired by an exhibit at the wonderful Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles. The exhibit presented household traditions and superstitions from various cultures, including that of informing the bees about any significant events in the house, such as births and deaths. This ritual of telling the bees rattled around in my head for a few years. Eventually, it came together with thoughts of how children's self-identities are affected by and eventually break from adult perceptions. And then, the story popped into my head, pretty much in its final form. The Museum of Jurassic Technology is a fantastically effective interactive work of art that examines our ideas of authoritative sources of knowledge and the cultural contexts of truth. In keeping with that concept, I have mixed real and folk traditions, aphorisms, and the word derivations with fictional ones. The listeners might enjoy the puzzle of which or which. Early on, I realized that the story required an unusual and rather challenging writing constraint as well, which I also leave to the listener to discover. Thank you, Greg. Gregory Norman Bossert started writing in 2009 on a dare from a friend. Son of a bitch, really? (laughs) God. His first published story came out in Asimov Science Fiction Magazine in 2010, and he attended the legendary Clarion Writers Workshop that same year. Since then, he has published a dozen stories, branched out to fantasy and horror, won the World Fantasy Award, and been a finalist for the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. Look for upcoming stories from Asimov's Beneath Ceaseless Skies and Kaleidotrope. Greg's day job is in the film industry, currently as a layout artist and industrial light and magic, wrangling spaceships and monsters. Oh, so, kind of like my job. Our reader this week is Kian McMahon, who last read for us Patricia Russo's Sitting Around the Stew Pot. He's an Irish web designer, storyteller, and media geek with interest in science, hipster art house cinema, and a good cup of tea. So, mind you say the words properly to the bees and enjoy the story. The Telling by Gregory Norman Bussert Mel peered around Cook's hip as the butler stepped out of the master bedroom and carefully shut the door. Pierce stood for a minute, one pale hand still on the glass knob, the other unconsciously stroking his neckcloth smooth. 
Mel thought the hallway seemed lighter, as if the butler had closed all the darkness in the house behind the heavy oak door. The entire staff of the house was there, lining the two long walls of the hall, even Ralph the gardener and Neff, who turned the roast, and on any other occasion would be beaten if found upstairs. Pierce looked up then, eyes worn to a pale sharpness under the heavy white brows, and Mel leaned back into the cover of Cook's wide flank, safety from the butler's gaze, from the strangeness of the moment. Lord Dellis has passed, Pierce said. The staff gasped and sighed, as if they had not known already from the cries that had haunted the house since the evening last, and had stopped so suddenly this morning. Stopped without an echo, Cook had said, with heavy significance and added, That's that then, as she did when a loaf went flat, or a bird slipped from the spit to the ashes. There had been no sighs then. The staff had exchanged wearied nods and worried glances in the silence of a house without a head, and there had been a few curious glances towards Mel's spot on the corner stool that had left Mel wondering what one was meant to feel, and if that dizzy burst of relief and fear was evident, was evil. In these difficult moments we take guidance from the wisdom of tradition, Pierce continued now. The upstairs staff will see to the shades and to the curtains in the conservatory, Ralph the shutters, closed and latched, and then the front walk swept with the yew brush. The shrouds for the portraits may be found in the cabinets of the still room. The clocks must all be muffled and a poppy placed on each mantel. The downstairs maid curtsied. Cook, a hare's head for the dogs, a fresh one, if you please. Cook snorted, as if I didn't know that meant, but quietly. Mel felt it more than heard it, a quaking of that vast thigh. Pierce scowled thoughtfully at the wall. The panelling there was lighter, where a painting had been taken down and not replaced. I believe those are the most immediate duties that custom and propriety demand of us. We shall convene at noon in the kitchen to discuss the period of mourning. Ralph the gardener cleared his throat. <coughs> the bees, he prompted. Ah, yes, the bees, Pierce said. Where is the child? Ralph shuffled uncomfortably and looked sideways at Neff. It's meant to be the youngest um, male in the household. Pierce acted as usual, as if Neff was beneath his notice. The child will do. Where is it? Cook rumbled with discontent, but placed her knuckles between Mel's shoulder blades and pushed. Here, sir, Mel said, and stood straight, suddenly eager for the brightness of the gardens. You will come with me, boy. Pierce glared from Ralph to Cook, as if curting disagreement, and Mel's expectations slumped to unease at that accustomed tension between the senior staff. The Lord is dead. The bees will need telling. Mel followed Pierce down the promenade and around the fountain, which Ralph had already shut down, past the stables and into the kitchen gardens, the butler was a thin black line against the round clouds, the wide morning sky. Mel walked a pace or two behind, a stake in one hand like a staff, topped by a fluttering length of black crepe. Standard bearer for the house of the dead, Mel thought.
Step lively, child. The bees must be told such news promptly, lest they take offence and swarm, or so tradition tells us, and there is much to do in the house. The east end of the gardens lapped against a low bluff, a wall of glassy green flint. The hive was on a wide stone plinth set in a hollow in the rock. It was a great skep, an overturned basket fully twice Mel's height, straw loops whipped with briarwood and bramble and plastered with ochre dung. A dark round entrance gaped at the bottom, bees clustered there like yellowed teeth. Ralph's father, or perhaps his grandfather, had added frames to simplify the waxed harvest, and the straw had been replaced over the years, but Mel thought the hive itself was as old as the flint, as old as the house itself. Drive the wand there, Pierce said, lifting his hand slightly, a finger extended. The ground was scattered with jagged shards, which Neff said were the teeth of the creatures killed by the beeves, and Ralph said were the discards of ancient peoples working the flint. Mel looked from the ground to the butler, confused. Pierce huffed with impatience and said, The wand, child, the stake in your hands, drive it in the ground, there. Mel worked the stake into the ground. With the cloth coiled limply around it, it looked like a summer-day effigy of Pierce. The butler frowned and tsk at the result. Mel set it a notch more deep and straight, in hopes of avoiding a flick of the butler's hand. Pierce just pointed, however, to the space before the hive. The words now, the words as we practised. That practised had been a few hurried moments at the kitchen door, Pierce and Cook arguing the lines, and Ralph adding his opinion when the sweeping took him near enough. Mel had a knack for catching words, if not for the speaking of them. They came surely, but softly. Mistress sweet, mistress sharp, the Lord is dead, and hence away. Mistress black, mistress gold, your folk come hither, here to stay. Oh stay, oh stay, I pray you stay. There was silence then, or so Mel thought at first, and Pierce, never one for standing still, began to turn away. But under the distant chittering of the birds and the wayward breeze, there was a low rumble like a growling, and the hive quivered. Mel thought of Cook in the moments before her hand struck out at some failing and flinched. Pierce stopped and turned a dry, impatient eye to the hive. A bee flew from the dark mouth of the hive as if spat, a straight line towards the garden. A second one shot north towards the barley field, and then dozens, hundreds were fleeing the hive, spreading in all directions. They swarm, Pierce cried. You've said it wrongly. They're nay swarming, Ralph said. Come up quietly to lean on the broom a few yards back. Hive's got two, three, hundred, hundred. And it's no swarm without the queen. Try the words again, Mel. Mel looked at Pierce, who gave a sharp nod and a frown for Ralph. The gardener returned a look of eroded amusement. The grounds and above all the bees were his keeping, and he had little fear of the butler. Mistress sweet, mistress... Mel was stopped by a buzzing, not from the hive, but all around, thick and rising in pitch. It was as if they had stumbled into a fog of sound. Bees whizzed past, ears and eyes, ruffled hair and sleeves, far more than had fled. All headed back to the hive. Some entered, but most landed on the straw or the surrounding stone in a swirling carpet. They fetched the workers from the fields, is what, Ralph said. Third time's charmed, Mel.
Pierce prodded Mel back into place with sharp fingertips. A step or two closer than caution would advise. The bees slowed their withering dance as if waiting, antennae aloft and quivering. The buzzing died down, the rumble once again audible. Attentive was the word for it, Mel thought. The words, Pierce said, though quietly, as if he too felt the attention of the hive. The air was too clear, the sunlight flat and harsh against the flint. Mel glanced back at the house and its shuttered slowness, managing a small dizzying breath. Mistress sweet, mistress sharp, the lord is dead, the bees exploded. It was like someone kicked a bonfire, Ralph said over the noon meal in the kitchen. Mel nodded, bees like sparks flying outward, gold and black, and even where those sparks had landed they had stung. Mel had shrieked and leapt back, sending Pierce staggering. They had caught each other and run. Even in the middest of fright, Mel had marvelled to see the butler stretch his skinny legs, leather soled slipping and scraping the gravel walk to the safety of the kitchen. Mel had not been stung badly, just a handful of pink welts that itched more than hurt. Ralph had arrived unscathed a minute later, bearing Pierce's hat and news of the hive. They have not swarmed, he said, around a mouthful of cheese and pickle. The cream bides yet, but they are surely riled. Pierce frowned and eyed Mel over his pincenas. Ralph swallowed and said, "'Twarn't the telling now, nor the words. That was done proper.' way it's always been done. Cook put protective arms around Mel's shoulders and said, Shouldn't have made Mel here do it, is what. I'm not sure it was all proper with the child's condition. And Ralph said, Not sure the likes of us should be making Mel do anything now that the Lord's dead. Mel slid down under Cook's arms, heart thumping in confusion. It was desperately tempting the mystery of Mel's place responsibility of no one and everyone, without role or function in a house that was built upon these things. But the attention was unwelcome. Mel preferred the dark corners, which were many, and Cook's reassuring, leave the child be, not the staff's curious glances, Ralph's considered gaze, Pierce's glare. The butler had flushed a splotchy red, like Cook's port cheddar, I think it hardly proper for the staff to discuss Lord Dallas's business over the kitchen table, he said, and the child is no matter. Cook quivered, opened her mouth, but Pierce added, no matter of the staff, with such finality that Cook sat up and shut her mouth again. It matters. I matter, Mel thought, but said nothing. Pierce turned his glare on Ralph. Nor are the bees any matter of significance. Ralph snorted into his ale. You'll say different when the orchards bear no fruit and the candles run out. There's something they want. You say they have not swarmed. And when Ralph nodded, the butler sniffed dismissively. Then what the bees want is no concern of ours. The scullery maid leaned forward into view from her spot behind Ralph. Should we be sending word to the townsfolk, sir? She wilted back into her chair, under Pierce's glare. Let the town swarm, Pierce said. By right and tradition, the house is its own trust. 
and any who might have claimed otherwise are dead or... His gaze grew vague and aimless, but Mel ducked from it nonetheless. Or gone beyond our care. After that, Pierce kept the conversation to the ritual and responsibilities of mourning, and the meal soon broke into busy gossiping groups. Ralph stomped out the door and Mel followed, ducking tasks and curious looks alike. Ralph, what? What are those things that you and Cook and Pierce leave unsaid, like the empty spots in the walls where paintings are missing? What do they have to do with me? What am I? But Mel stammered and said instead, What if the bees did swarm? The gardener stopped and turned with a wary eye over Mel's head to the house. Don't you fret, child, or give Pierce more mind than he's due. He thinks everything turns around the house and its traditions, and forgets it is of the land as much as any living thing. The bees don't like change is all, no more than any of us. But if they did swarm, where would they go? Ralph looked down at Mel and squinted. You're growing, child. Best to ask Cook for some new clothes, or mayhaps I have something that'll fit you. He tapped his pipe out against the sole of his boot and shook his head. Not a child much longer, eh? And goodness knows what we'll do with you. But where would the bees go? Mel persisted. Ralph turned to look over the garden wall and across the long rows of barley. Away and gone past our fields to some other house, I reckon. Beyond our ken, for sure. No concern of ours, Pierce would say, and in that he'd be right for once. No more questions now. I have things to do, and so do you. The gardener clumped down the path, but Mel stood, pondering the idea of another house beyond the fields, the meaning of away and gone. The box of papers was in the old garden shed, under canvas, surrounded by tools rusted beyond repair. Mel had found it years ago, half buried in the ashes of the refuse pit, the black paint stained and scarred by flame, and the silver fittings tarnished, had moved it to the safety of the abandoned shed after discovering the treasure inside. Words, and words about words, far more fascinating than the maid sayings or the hornbook Pierce insisted be read every seventh morn. Some thoughts on the derivations of meaning, the first page read, and under that, as discovered and annotated by Caleb Dellis. Meaning had been the first word Mel searched for, turning carefully through the pages. They were unbound and unnumbered, their order obscure. Meaning was hard to find in the dim corridors and hushed conversations of the house, and Mel had a craving for it that was sometimes as strong and sharp as hunger. But there was no entry for it. The expected page held this instead. Melisma, noun, the prolongation of one syllable over many notes, peculiar to the performance of chants, the mysteries, etc. From melismia, an air, or perhaps meliza, as in a bee's wandering path. Mel had to look up most of the words in the book's definitions, tracing that same wandering path through the fields of entries, collecting grains of meaning to ponder through long wakeful nights on the cot in Cook's room, like the words that had come today at the hive. Attentive, adjective, evincing heedfulness, perhaps from entendre, to serve, or to wait. 
Whom do you serve, bees? Mal thought. Why are you waiting? There was a buzzing against the window, a creeping shadow on the grimed pane. Mel traced a circle around it with a fingertip and said, What do you want? I had a dream, Cook said, as she rolled the crust for the second day morning pie. A strange dream it was, seemed real as life if it weren't for the oddness of it. Mel was lying there in the cot by my window, same as usual, and there was a line of bees crawling in under the shade, across pillow and cheek and into the child's mouth. Each carried a drop of something that glittered like a pearl in the moonlight and was gone when they flew out again. The bees' feet had prickled, Mel remembered, and their fur had tickled as they worked their way through his lips, teeth and tongue. They had smelled of barley and clover and a dark musk that made Mel think of travellers' wagons on market day. Bees is mad at Mel for ruining the tellin', Neff said from the hearth. That was venom is what... They want another death and another telling, so things can be done right. The bees' solemn procession had been silent, their wings folded and still, when they crept back over the sash they had disappeared, as if not flying but falling into the darkness. Cook had snorted and stirred in her bed, muttering a sleepy query that Mel dared not attempt to answer, and settled back into gentle snores. The downstairs maid looked up from her sewing, every hand not otherwise busy, was stitching the black cloth and shook her head. Honey tongues tells true, she quoted. Some coming revelation, that's what it means. The drops had not been sweet, but fiercely sour and spicy like Cook's winter cakes. They had rolled one at a time down tongue and throat. Mel had taken small, shallow breaths and clenched back the urge to gag, rigid in the cot, somewhere between terror and awe. Ralph coughed around the pipe. He was on a stool by the corner, no suing for him, fingers too rough for silk or linen, he said, though those same fingers could coax an aphid from the bloom without bruising a petal. "'Twasn't honey,' he said. "'Twas the royal jelly that the bees used to make a new queen.' He pointed the pipe at Mel. "'The dream means change, and good luck.' Cook dropped the crust into the pan with a decisive slap. First good luck the child will have seen, then.' but I reckon the change has come to all of us. Everyone nodded or shook their head wisely, according to their want, all but Mel, who sat still as always, heart quivering like wings blurred by speed, thinking of honey tongues and change, of another telling. Could their bees in their ceaseless mute searching want the same thing that Mel had searched for in the house and staff, the gardens and the far fields around, in the box of words in the shed? Could the bees want meaning? Mel stood before the door to the library and ran a finger along the crease of jaw and neck where the skin always itched. For all the lore of words, the library had been a place of dread when Lord Dallas had been alive. Mel had been required to sit long evenings there, the comfort of the kitchen stool in its corner behind the ovens, exchanged for a chair of cold leather, set in the centre of the rug and the acrid peat and ash fumes of the Lord's whisky. Sometimes Dallas had worked in the ledgers that tracked accounts of the house and its estates, and sometimes he had spoken, not so much to Mel as to the house itself, it seemed, of things that had happened long ago, wars and murders and deals with distant powers, and sometimes he had simply drunk. He had never looked at Mel, not directly, 
and as much as Mel hated to be the centre of attention, the suspense of the lords not looking was worse. Mel had stared ahead at the faded guilt of the books and feared if their eyes did meet, there would be some terrible recognition. The fear was gone though, those eyes were closed behind heavy new hung black curtains and Mel had thought that there might be something left in the library to explain those long evenings in the chair, the confusion of household, the strange desire of the bees. Still, it was hard to turn the knob and go in where that chair might still sit in the frayed patterned rug. Mel stood and scratched and shivered a little from the strangeness of the last day, and only then heard the voice behind the door. For a second, the Lord's death and the telling and the bees' visits all threatened to swirl into dream, but the voice was sharper than Dallas's murmur, and raised in a tone that the Lord would never have approved. It was Cook, and she was saying, held up to ridicule, or worse. Goodness knows what the townsfolk might do. And Pierce's reedy voice added, More importantly, it is our responsibility now to maintain the honour of the house. I'll not have that impropriety brought out of the corner and into the light. Ralph replied, his words as calm as always, and no doubt mumbled around his pipe. All Mel could catch was, not stir the wasp's nest, which seemed odd, as Ralph was always quick and fierce with wasps, lest they cross the bees, he would say as he took up his stick. We are agreed then, Pierce said. We shall speak no more of it. Cook rumbled agreement and there was a creak of chairs and a shuffling of feet. Mel crept backwards to the quiet of the hallway runner and was around the corner and halfway down the stairs before the door opened. Mel lay awake that night as Cook snored and grumbled in her bed. If the anticipation of the bee's return had not been enough, there was also an ache across chest and belly as shifting as terrifying and wondrous as the previous night's visit. A new queen, Ralph had said, and the dream means change. What had the bees brought with those bitter drops? The shades were down. They would not be raised for weeks yet, but Mel had reached through to slide the sash up, and the warm breeze slipped in bearing the smell of spring clover and a slice of moonlight. The breeze made a gentle, persistent suggestion of sleep, despite the promise of the bees. Attentive, Mel thought again, and lifted the edge of the shade. In flew a bee. Not the silent, creeping parade of the night before, but a solitary buzzing bee, fat with fur, that flew a few lazy circles and landed on the blanket over Mel's chest. Hello, bee, Mel whispered. The bee waggled its body in return, not a wave, but a sort of zigzagged a line diagonally across the blanket. It stopped, looped right to its starting point, and retraced the staggered walk. You're drunk, Mel said. Lord Dallas had paced like that almost every night, stumbling circuits around the library until he collapsed into a chair, and finally into his deathbed. The bee looped left and drew its drunken line again, and again, and again, alternating left and right, tracing a rough circle with a jagged line across the middle. An egg, Mel guessed. The bee continued its dance. A gourd? The moon? Cook grunted and rolled over. Mel was quiet then, 
and watched the bee walk until the sliver of moonlight crept into its path. It stopped when it hit that light, and flew up and around Mel's head and out under the sash. Mel pressed a palm against the pane, and hoped for another visitor, but the only thing that came in the windows was the air and the light and the distant thrill of a nightingale, and eventually sleep. And then it was the sun and wakefulness, and Mel sat up and said, A compass! The bee's jagged path had pointed towards the barley fields, a bit west of south, and that was the path Mel took once the morning chores were done. There was nothing of note on the fields, beyond a lack of labourers. They were in mourning over Lord Dellis, Pierce said, but Ralph shook his head and said, The house has no hold on them. Past the fields was the west road. Mel came out onto it not far from the crossing with the town road, but that led north and away from the bee's path. Straight ahead was pasture, spattered with cows and their droppings, and beyond that a stream, and the end of the estate, and then rolling hills and copses like sleepy green sheep. There were no other houses. Mel walked until the sun passed noon, and lost itself behind the leaves of old untended forest. Amongst those trees were standing stones, that at first seemed as wild as the trees. But the shifting light revealed an arm, a swell of breast, a swirl of patterned robe like honeycomb, an eye as grey as pierces above moss-softened lips. These monuments marked three sides of a square, broken and overgrown. The fourth side was cut by an outcropping of chalk and flint, in which was set a statue of a woman, covered head to toe by a veil, carved with patterns of leaf and limb and long zigzag lines. Desponia, a low rough voice said. Mel started and turned. A man stood a few paces away, sad deep-set eyes over a beard as wild as the woods, arms and legged barred by roughly repaired clothes. The name means mistress of the house. It is more properly considered a title. The goddess's true name and nature was a mystery, passed mother to daughter by those who kept this place. His voice was as worn and splintered as the stone, but the tone was measured and clear, the words careful. Whence come you, girl? From the Dallas estate, Mel had said, and after a moment of consideration added, Sir? And weather bound. I'm following a bee, Mel said. The man considered this in a turn, for such a time, and with such a frown that Mel began to grow alarmed. Finally, he turned to walk away, but said over his shoulder, I have eggs if you hunger. He doesn't seem dangerous, Mel thought, and he talks like my book, like he knows things. Thank you, sir, I do, in fact. They walked for a few minutes along the outcropping, which grew to a bluff, and came to a small camp around a shallow cave in the rock, a lean-to, a bed of bracken, a stack of books gone green under the shelter of the cave. Mel sat on a stump, and the man produced tin cups of a sort of tea, small spoons of bone and the promised eggs, which were small and blue and cooked warm but still runny. They ate and drank in silence, two eggs apiece, after which... Mel carefully crushed the shells. That they may not be used as boats by witches, the man said gravely with a nod, and did the same to his. 
He refilled Mel's cup. The tea seemed brewed from bark and small blossoms, and stared into his own, and said, Lord Dallas, then, how fares he? Dead, Mel said, and then regretted the brusqueness, as the man looked up with wide eyes and spilled half of his tea. Dead, you say, dead, I had not heard. It's been just three days, sir, and with an unwanted wildness that might have been the tea or the woods or the fluttering in Mel's torso, added, Three days, and I don't know who knows. There's no one left in charge of the estate except Pierce the butler, and no one has been told except the bees, and they spurned the telling. The man barked a laugh, as strange and bitter as the tea. Did they now? The ancients believed honey brought truth as prophecy. Desponia, the unnameable mistress whose house you found yonder, was fed by the bees who crept under her veil, and thus she learned the mysteries. If the bees objected, it was only because the telling was false. Their lord was not dead. But I saw the body, sir. That had been this morning, when the body had been moved from bedroom to the downstairs parlour and the casket Ralph had built, oak with the liqueur still wet and hardware borrowed from a scattering of splinters in the crypt. Weren't no objections from aught when I took em, Ralph had said. Though Pierce flushed and fumed, the body in the open casket had been pale and bloated with a sour, peaty smell. Not much changed from life, Mel had thought, and stared into the blank eyes. There had been no revelations there, after all. Oh, I believe the man is dead. Jacob was his name, but he was not Lord Dallas, not rightfully. He had a sister, Deborah, and a brother, Caleb, and he was the youngest of those three. Mel thought of conversations cut short, dark spaces in the wall where portraits once hung, and Lord Dallas pacing circles with an ever-emptying glass. Are they still alive? The brother is, a sad wretch bemused by time and circumstances. But he's the rightful lord then. Would he come back, do you think? They would not have him back. Mel took a deep breath, ribs shifting, grinding. I think Pierce and Ralph are going to fight, and Cook will fly into one of her moods. Where will I... Where will I find answers, Mel thought. Ralph from Wraith Wolf, Wolf's Council, the man said blankly. He fished a twig from his tea, flicked it away, looked up under bristling brows. Have you no parents, a mother at least, who could sew or cook and thus support you in town? I can cook, sir, and sew, and sharpen a plough, and fix a fence. But I wouldn't fit in with the townsfolk. I don't even fit in at the house. I'm just in between. Is limbo the right word? The man nodded, but then frowned and said, No, girl, it's a wrong word, a hellish word. Do you think... Mel paused, feeling foolish and a growing fear. Your pardon, sir, but you know things. Do you think the bees want me to follow the path through the woods to somewhere else? The man laughed again, his face cleft by old bitter lines like tree-splintered stone. There is no path through, girl. Try and try and try as I have. No meanings to be found. Just more mystery. And every way leads back here. The house won't let me lose myself. The house is lost, sir. Oh, please, if you know where the brother is, or the sister. Dead.
The man was on his feet, not so much shouting as growling. She is dead, the whore. She and her fop of a lover both run through the heart and left her rot. And the brother, he rots too. Though he yet lives, rots alive, and spurns all news like your bees, and looks for understanding instead of amongst old tales and older stones. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean away, he roared, and threw himself down on the bed of Bracken. Away, child, he said quietly, an arm across his face. Away, and hence away. You've crawled under the wrong veil. I have no need of your honey. Mel was halfway back to the statues when a voice called out, Girl! Mel didn't stop. There is a manuscript in the house. In the library, the pages loose in a black box with silver fittings. A dictionary. Do you know? Is it yet there? It's still in the house, Mel said. Not quite a lie. So, and after a minute he added, Words mislead, girl. Be wary of following them. What else then? Mel asked. The man said nothing more, but in the shifting moat speckled leaf light there was a flicker and a buzzing. Mel had lost the bee's path amongst the trees, and regardless the man was too frightening and his story too astonishing. Maybe there were answers yet in the limbo of the house, in its buck and bees, still some comfort to be had in its corners. It was late afternoon before Mel got back, which would have earned a few blows from the Pierce's cane under other circumstances, but the butler was in the downstairs parlour with Ralph, voices not quite raised but certainly sharp. Cook gave Mel a half-hearted swipe with a wooden spoon and said, The coffin's cracked and Lord Dallas's half tumbled out of it. Not the Lord, Mel wanted to say, but did not. It was those handles and such as Ralph took them from the crypt, the downstairs maid said. Silver once buried is to the darkness married, is what they say. Bad luck, sure as sunset. Ralph should have used more nails as all, Nelf said and sniggered. Lots of weight for a little box. Cook went after Neff with a spoon, and Mel slipped out the door and down the garden path. Time for the book, Caleb's book, Mel thought, but first to tell the bees. The sun was low in the west, the hive gilded like mosaic set into the flint. The words came easily, as if glimpsed in the flat thick light and the dim disquiet of the house, overheard in the rumble of the hive and the echoes of the man in the forest. Mistress sweet, mistress sharp, the lord lives in the forest dim, broken, sad and grim. Mistress black, mistress gold, let me bide, let me stay. Oh, stay, oh, stay, please let me stay. A bee flew out from the hive and hovered. Black eyes glittered in the sunlight. Mel raised a hand and the bee settled gently, crawled in a small circle, and carefully drove its stinger into Mel's palm. The pain was unbelievable. The stings from two days ago had been mild and the welts were already faded, but this was like a handful of molten lead searing down to the fingertips and up past the wrist. Mel hissed a sharp sound like a startled cat and fought the urge to crush the bee in a clenched fist. But the bee pulled forward on its own, the stinger ripping from its sternum, poison sacs still pumping like teeny hearts, and collapsed. 
Mel stood and watched the bee quiver and grow still, the welt rise and turn an angry hue, everything swirling sky to ground and the sun squeezed to an angry spot, or is that the sting? And then Ralph was there chuckling concern and spreading cool chalky mud in the wound. And then they were in the kitchen and the cook was angry, but not it seemed at Mel, or not exactly, and then Mel was in a bed, though there was still a hint of sunset coming through the shade. Cook was saying, the child has taken a fever from the sting, damn Pierce for the telling. And Mel wanted to say, no, no, it's not my hand, it's in my chest, between my legs and my thoughts, there was a sister, a brother, I asked for the wrong thing, the dream means change. But all that came out was silence and sleep. Later, like a dream, the bee danced again, pointing north this time, past cook and house and towards the village, and though the bee glowed on a blanket that was so far down and away, Mel knew what it wanted. The next morning, Mel felt as clear and as light as the breeze through the open kitchen door. Cook said, back to bed, child, last thing I need is another body to look after. Neff sniggered at that. But Mel sat in the corner and had a slab of bread with honey, and when Cook went upstairs to speak with Pierce, the butler had moved Lord, not the Lord Dallas's body, back to the bedroom while Ralph repaired the casket and sat guard with it. Mel left the house and headed north. The town was half a mile past the front wall of the estate, no more than a fifteen-minute walk on the old road, though rarely did anyone from the estate spend those minutes so and it was no more than another five minutes to the far end, but within that duration were four shops, and an inn, and a tavern, and a market, and a dozen hundred people. Mel stood at the square at the crossroads, and looked around in dismay as the town buzzed to all sides. Inspiration came with a sip of water from the well, and the woman came to fill their buckets and gossip. Please, ma'ams, is there a Deborah who lives in this town? There were three, it turned out. One no older than Mel, or so the women said, and one was married to the innkeep and from a town four days to the south, who knew what customs they kept down there, the woman agreed, but her blouse is far too liberal in its lines for a respected wife in this town. As to the third, Deborah, one of the women made a sign with crossed fingers, and another spat thrice into the dirt. Don't let your pass cross her shadow, one said, lest you catch her madness and it was only by asking how to avoid such an accident that Mel was able to get the location of this Deborah's house from them. The house was at the north end of town, and if the inhabitant was mad, then her madness was not evident from the exterior. The house seemed neatly kept with a swept path and pale roses by the door. Mel knocked and swallowed a sigh when the door opened. The woman seemed too old to be a sister to either Lord Dellis. But the hand that held the door half open was not so withered, though the other hung lame, and the brows that rose in inquiry were still black and smooth. It was not age, but pain, Mel thought, that had graved such deep lines on the woman's face. I'm sorry to bother you, ma'am, but might I ask you a question? The woman started to close the door. Mel put a hand in the opening, regardless of the oozing welt, and said, Lord Dellis is dead. The woman blinked and bit her lip, then grabbed Mel's hand, a stab of pain, and pried it free. 
past time then, and past any of my caring, she said. He wasn't really Lord, Mel said. His brother lives. And then, heart throbbing like a fresh sting, added, and so does his sister. The woman stopped, still holding Mel's hand, and stared. The pressure of her thumb on the welt brought a whirling faintless like the fever of the previous night, but Mel sucked air into aching ribs and belly and stood firm. The woman finally looked down, shifted her grip on Mel's hand, and then, in a low, distracted voice, I have something will suit that. Mel followed the woman into the house. If it was as neat inside as out, in its way, it nonetheless had something of the forest in it. The posts and beams were unfinished, and promised the swirl of robes, the hint of a knife examined too long. The floor was flint and mossy green, and everywhere there was plants, in drying bundled and twisted wreaths. The smell was like that of the madman's tea, and a bit like the drops the bees had brought. It did not at all help Mel's swirling, buzzing brain. The sound of the woman rubbed into the welt did help, however. The throbbing faded, and the swelling, and the scent of mint in meadows cleared Mel's head. This should have been better tended, boy, lest it fester, the woman said. In my day, the gardener knew better. Ralph is still gardener, ma'am, Mel said. The gardener has always been named Ralph, just as the son of the Pierce line has always been butler, and cooks bread the same as her grandmother's grandmother's. The staff do not just keep the house and the estate, they keep the manner of things. The woman leaned towards Mel and hissed these last lines, lame arm flailing, her breath was sharp, alkaline, like the chalk and flint hills where the grass had died away. If the man in the forest had been tangled and splintered, this woman was dry and twisted, but their eyes held the same pale anguish as those of Lord not the Lord Delus that last time Mel had looked him in the eyes, for all that he had been dead. The woman covered the pot of salve, placed it back on the shelf. Proprietary, that was Caleb's word for it, tradition, preserving the old ways, he'd say, as if the old ways needed his help. She coughed, or maybe it was a laugh and made a wide gesture at the shelves of pots and jars, the hanging twists of herbs, her lame arm swung like an echo of the motion and nearly hit Mel. And here I am, bottling wives' tales and superstitions to preserve these people, whose lives have not changed in a dozen centuries. Mel took a step backwards, wary of that swinging arm and those eyes, and came up against a post. Do you think, then... To bring me news, boy. So the Lord Dallas is dead. The staff lowers the shades, and months later they rise them again. Nothing is changed. There is no rightful Lord now, Mel said, and slid sideways, heart thudding. But a wreath of plaited branches blocked the way. There was no rightful Lord before, the woman said, as dry as she was, spittle flew. Maybe there never was. The bees are angry, I think they might leave, Mel said in a tiny voice. The bees have always been there, as long as the estate boy, and as long again and again, since these hills first rose from the sea. I tell you again, nothing is changed, and nothing is changed. And at that third repetition, 
pinned as Mel was between the post and the branches in the woman's despair, the fear faded, and there was just the meaning. You left, Mel said. I was cast away, the woman said, and pulled her shift aside. Above her heart was a hideous scar, the ribs crushed in and the shoulder twisted down. Caleb ran his sword through me and poor Davy Wilson, all in the name of Proprietary. I crawled from the ditch and Davy did not, and the child. The child was taken. And what difference did that make to any of us three? The woman took her lame arm in her sound hand and twisted until there was a crack from the shoulder. Cradling that twisted arm, staring into its palm, she said, Do you know what they say about a pregnant woman who sees a hair? The baby will be born with a hair lip. And how much worse is it then for a woman to see something monstrous at the very moment of conception? What perversion of nature would thence arise? I might as well still be fevered and find as much sense, Mel thought in dismay and asked. You saw a hair? I saw Jacob's face atop me, the woman cried. My own brother, like the devil leering over his domain, driving his sting again and again and again. And then Caleb, with all his desire for a proprietary and all his blindness for the truth, went and killed my Davy instead, who only wanted to take me away from that hell and ruined me and himself and left Jacob as lord. Oh, there's a tale for Caleb's book, is it not? Mel felt a sudden sharp longing for the shelter of Cook's flank, the dark corners of the house, the woven words of the dictionary but took a deep breath of the pungent air instead, and asked again, What of the child? Of monster is monster born. The child, oh, the child was neither girl nor boy, or both, and stained all down the neck with the sun of its birthing. The woman looked up into Mel's face, and her pale eyes went dark and focused. You seemed a boy just now. What is this change? Not waiting for an answer, the woman grabbed Mel's neckcloth and ripped it away. She made a sort of groan then and leaned against the shelves. I thought for a moment, but who would suffer such a child to live? Go, boy or girl, go back to the house and raise the shades, and some day you'll take the name Ralph and keep the bees, and it will all go on forever. And as Mel opened the door, the woman said like a sigh, I named the child Melise. I think it means bee, Mel said. Ralph had built a new casket out of massive slabs like tablecloths. They were tablecloths, in fact, from the formal dining room and the desk in the library. Pierce was scandalised and refused to allow the body to be placed within it. Ralph was walking around the downstairs now, whistling, tapping at the doors and towing the floorboards, and Pierce was upstairs with the body. The rest of the staff was gathered in the kitchen, cracking and crushing nuts for the one week morning loaf. Cook glared at Mel, but the wooden spoon was out of reach and her hands were deep in the dough. Mel took some cheese and bread and a pickle from the jar in the pantry and sat on Ralph's stool by the door to eat. After a while, Cook said, Where have you been, child? Mel swallowed and asked in reply, where is my mother? Neff sniggered from the hearth. His hands were too filthy even to shell the nuts and said, The dog was your mother.
Cook raised a sticky finger and shook it at him. The Lord may be gone, and Mr. Pierce and Ralph may as well be, but I can still thrash you, Neff Spit. It's true, though. That dog did love the child, the downstairs maid said. Remember the two of them curled on the hearth and the dog licking and licking? Kept the child clean, at least, unlike some, Cook grunted, still scowling at Neff. Dog's tongue to ease a pain, cure a wart, or lift a stain, the maid quoted primly. And so it was with Mel and that mark. If the dog were still alive, Mel, she'd have healed that hand of yours. Mel fingered the spot where the neck met collarbone, vague memories of warmth and wet and constant slow rhythm. It's better now, thanks. And when the conversation turned to the hounds left on the estate, and who in town might purchase them, Mel went down the path to the old shed. Propriety noun. Strictness of meaning. Literalness. Conformity with requirement. Correctness of morals. Right of possession. These senses difficult to reconcile. Cross-reference. Property. Superstition. Noun. Unattributable knowledge. From superstare. Stand over i.e. in awe or superiority, or superstays, that's which survives. Words mislead, Caleb had said. There are no answers in here, Mel muttered. It's just a... The word was under C. Catechism, Catholic, ah, it's just a catalogue of questions. Catalogue, noun, a list or register. Perhaps from kata, away, legain, to choose. Choose, Mal thought, away. That night, after Cook drifted to sleep, Mel carefully rolled up the shade and then the sash, slid out of sheet and robe, and lay naked in the moonlight. Things do change, Mal thought, and ran a hand from thigh to collarbone and back. Meaning can be found if you go searching, if you are attentive. There are other answers, and other fields. The next morning, Mel woke early. Cook was rolled face to the wall, still smelling of nuts and spice and golden crusts. Mel took a deep breath and snuck down the hall, into the main wing past the master bedroom, where Pierce snored softly by the sunken stained bed, and then down the stairs and out through the kitchen, where Neff sprawled and sniffed in the ashes. Ralph had left a half-finished casket on the kitchen path, made of panelling and the parlour floorboards this time, as if determined to take the house back to timber. Mel could see him standing out in the barley field, looking south, away to the distant forest. The hive was dark, the rising sun blocked by the bluff, but Mel could feel it rumbling in its niche. Mistress Sweet, Mistress Sharp, Mistress Black, Mistress Gold, your lady lives, and here I am, but I'm leaving. The rumble swelled and stopped, and the bees came out. No explosion of rage this time, nor a solemn parade, like that nighttime visit. The bees spiralled out and settled onto the cliff face until the flint was covered. Something glinted in the dim of the hive, a reflection of the waxing western sky, surrounded by a deep black. A leg appeared, big as a finger, 
and then another, and then a triangular head larger than a fist crowned with golden fur. The hive entrance bulged and stretched and finally tore, and the thorax came through, likewise robed in fur, and then the great abdomen banded with black as dark and glossy as the flint, and fully as long as Mel's forearm. The queen clung to the hive for a moment and shook loose her wings. Then she leapt out and up, a long loop to land on Mel's chest. Mel looked down into the dark, faceted eyes. Her wings fluttered, catching the dull light like glass. Her stinger hung like a claw over Mel's belly. At its tip, a clear drop swelled and clung, the size of a grape. You can come with me, Mel said, if you dare. The queen climbed up, claws catching cloth and flesh and hair. The stinger brushed the length of Mel's neck, the venom boiling down to the collarbone. Mel gasped and knew the mark had burned itself back in, swirling red proof of birth and change. That's that then, Mel said, and strode to the edge of the garden where the bluff had spilled down and could be climbed, and then ran east into the dawn, away and gone, and the queen and all the bees went with her. And welcome back. Wow. Now I know what Downton Abbey's been missing all these long seasons. I've listened to the story several times already. Kean gave it a really amazing read, and there's so much here to unpack and think about. I love how it challenges traditions and fate and urges us to accept change and follow it down the bluff into the dawn, wherever it may take us. Thank you, Greg. Alright, we're going to go ahead and hit feedback this week. For Alter S. Reese's America Thief, read by John Mishna. This was the story of a young Jewish magician who got made an offer he couldn't refuse, if you know what I'm saying. There wasn't a ton of feedback on this one, but those that did listen seemed to really enjoy it. Wonder Capo said, I really like the story this week. Good mix of gangsters, Jewish, and immigrant life in New York, and of course, magic. I thought the main character, Benny, was really flushed out in his interactions, and especially in his relation to the Goldberg kid, and the relationship with his father. Excellent stuff. Makes me want to hear more about Benny and how he came to learn magic. Also, wanted to applaud the narration on this one. Sometimes they make or break stories, and I thought this one was spot on. Benjamin J.B. said, I generally enjoyed this story. It is light in the magic department and he does skate past the plot crisis slash decision point between the gangsters pretty easily, but then the gangsters are only part of his problem. The bigger problem to me seems to be his uncomfortable immigrant slash native position, that identity crisis that you find in something like Portnoy's complaint or call it sleep. Except here, the crisis isn't just Jewish American but magician-slash-rabbi, two professions orbiting around books and figuring out rituals, and magician-slash-gangster, two professions on the fringe of society in their own ways. 
The central magical metaphor of balance seems like a good fit here, since the solution he finds is balance. Satisfy two competing gangsters, while also satisfying an ethical call from the community and or a version of his past self he sees in Goldbug, depending on how you want to parse that. And there was more where that came from. Thanks so much to all who commented on the story. Let us know what you thought of this week's episode at forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like what we're doing, how about visiting podcastle.org and putting a little honey in our pot? By which I mean, please, consider donating. We pride ourselves in paying our authors, and we need the money to keep going. Over the past year, we've brought you original fiction from Hugo Award winner Anne Leckie. We featured Cameron Hurley's Hugo Award winning essay, We Have Always Fought. We brought you this story, the 2013 World Fantasy Award winner, and we're committed to bringing you the best, most diverse, the most unique fantasy stories out there to you. Any help you can give us is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Associate Editors LaShawn Wanick, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Graham Dunlop, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwinden, myself, Dave Thompson, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a very special Super Team Up episode of two of your favorite Podcastle narrators. Until then, remember that things do change if you go searching and if you're attentive. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Muriel Barbary, who said, We think we can make honey without sharing in the fate of bees, but we are in truth nothing but poor bees destined to accomplish our task and then die. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.